Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to 12 Noon on Wednesday. And as usual, he here in the staff offices of Waters Church in North Attleboro, Massachusetts, are coming to you to talk to you about Hot Topics, a special edition of the Deep End Podcast. Welcome in, everybody. This is a Hot Topics edition of the Deep End. Waters Church presents the Deep End Podcast Hot Topics. My name is Tim, and I am joined in the studio with Josh Pereira. Hello, Josh. What's going on? How are you? Doing well. Good. Josh Pereira and I, yesterday, we exchanged uh, movie recommendations. Yes, last night, last So last night, it's always good to have <clears throat> friends that you uh, exchange movie recommendations with. Yeah. You recommended to me the, more, the movie A Quiet Place. Yes, I did. I recommended to you the movie Hacksaw Ridge. Yes. So I am a big... Uh, wimp when it comes to horror movies. <laughs> <laughs> and A Quiet Place is a horror movie. If you have seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. It is an intense, on the edge of your seat kind of movie. Mm. But I got to say, it was an incredible movie. Great movie. Great story. Uh, I highly recommend it as a pastor. It's like the only horror movie I would ever recommend. Yeah. Uh, first off, because I don't watch horror movies, so I don't know what good ones there are. <laughs> I have to have uh, my wife tuck me in after I watch Stranger Things episodes. Uh, <laughs> so that's how much of a wimp I am with that stuff. <laughs> but uh, I watched uh, A Quiet Place, and I want to say that that is such a great movie because the gospel is in that movie. We we don't we have to you know see it to understand what I'm talking about. Uh, and it's about forgiveness, and it's about family, and it's about love, and it's a dramatically pro-life movie, actually, when you think about it. But it's a, um, f- a powerful film, and then last night I didn't go to sleep uh, very easily. So thank you for that. I'm on five hours of sleep here, because once I watch these movies, it's bad. You lost your microphone. Okay, so I'm going it alone here as we continue on. Uh, let me know what... Uh, on Facebook comments, those of you who are watching, today's episode of The Deep End, because I didn't preach this past week in a hot topic, this week on Wednesdays, um, uh, on The Deep End on Wednesday, we're going to let you drive the conversation. So this is a bit different for us. This is a new endeavor. We haven't done a uh, go anywhere, ask anything episode of The Deep End podcast, but today we're doing that. What question have you ever asked? that you would like an answer to. And you think, maybe Pastor Tim has some idea of what he's talking about up there. So uh, you can trust me with your questions if you so happen to want to. And I will take them and I'll do the best that I can to give you biblical answers. Uh, I don't give you pop psychology answers. I don't give you necessarily academic answers. But I do give you biblical answers, and I'll do my best to do that. So if you have any questions you have ever wanted to ask about Christianity, any question at all, nothing is off limits, this is your chance. You drive the conversation. I know some have already submitted questions, and there's a phone number that you can submit more questions to. Uh, do we have that phone number, Josh? Can We, we do. It is 508-316-9333. Anonymously, uh, you can ask questions. Anonymously. We will not know. Is it on the are. screen, Michael? Can we get that on the screen? Okay, great. Yeah, it's right there. It's right there? All right, good. So ask away anonymously, and we won't know who's asking, so that maybe hope will help you. Ask the question a little bit more boldly. Yeah. Try to, uh, try to stump Pastor Tim. Try to stump me. Yes, that would be really interesting be if fun. you could stump me. So there, oh yeah, there we go. Now I have a screen and I can see myself on the screen. I see, I feel so much better, more connected. Um, so everybody, go ahead. Ask the questions. I know we have some submitted. Can we get to the first question, Josh Pereira? Yes. First one, what will heaven be like? Will things that we enjoy like food, sex, art, and music exist in heaven? Mm, okay. Well, here's what I believe we can ascertain from the scriptures concerning heaven. Uh, number one, uh, there is the temporal place of the dead for those who are in Christ, which is a spiritual realm that exists now. Paul the Apostle says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. When he talks to the Philippians, he says, I, I wish that I might depart uh, and be with Christ, but I, it is better for me to stay here and work with you, Philippians, in the, in the message of the gospel. So evidently there is, a, there is a place right now for those who have died in Christ that the moment that they breathe their last year, they experience heaven in the spiritual realm uh, with Christ in his presence. 
However, that is a temporary residence, and people don't realize this. Because Revelation talks about this, uh, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, a what you would call a purified and redeemed created order. Uh, just like we enjoy earth, heaven, the solar system, the planets, the universe as it is now, just like we discover it, we research it, we... Um, we use it and manipulate it to accomplish things like roads and bridges and technology. I believe we're going to have that in the next realm when Christ returns and inaugurates the end of all things. So to the person's question, I know we're going to have food uh, because when Jesus is resurrected and, and the scripture says this in first John, that our bodies will be like his glorious body. Well, his glorious body enjoyed food. He made breakfast for the disciples on the morning of the resurrection uh, he ate with them and drank with them on several um, uh, appearances post-resurrection. And then we know that the Bible describes the end of days as the marriage supper of the Lamb, the culmination of all things, is the marriage supper. So it is a wedding feast. And this is why there are feasts all throughout the Old Testament, the Feast of Israel, the annual feast, three annual feasts. Uh, there is the Lord's Supper, which is supposed to be a feast for the church today. Uh, our, our faith is a is a is quite an eating oriented faith. We, Hallelujah. We eat the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. We drink the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. These things are pointing to the ultimate culmination of all things at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So I believe we'll be eating, drinking, enjoying creation. Uh, the one thing that I'm pretty sure we will not be doing is that is we will not be having sex in heaven uh, because we will not be procreating. Uh, and we will not be, and when I mean heaven, I mean that the new resurrected bodies that we will receive. So I don't believe that those realities will be part of the next age. Sorry to all the nymphomaniacs out there. Uh, you will not be able to have sex in the next age. So this all show speaks to the reality that you probably shouldn't make sex or sexuality a primary identity because it comes to an end. And just like... Um, your job here on this earth, your 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 uh, <laughs> achievements on this side of the afterlife uh, in this age, uh, just like your even your family relations in this age come to an end. Marriage, um, interestingly enough, comes to an end at the inauguration of the end of days. Uh, Jesus said they will not be marrying nor giving in marriage in the uh, in the new heavens and the and the new age. So. We will be like the angels in heaven, Jesus says. So there will be no marriage. Therefore, I probably believe there will be no sex, uh, no procreation. Uh, but that means, and you say, well, that doesn't sound so interesting. But it is interesting. And I think about this. Once you get married and you stop uh, worrying about you know, having sex because you can have godly sex, uh, what happens in most marriages and with most married people is because now they've satisfied that need and they have access to it regularly, they can go out there and actually do something with their lives. Right. Like This is one of the things that stunts a lot of young people is because they're so obsessed with the idea of having sex, they actually hold themselves back from the potential in their lives to do, perform, create, imagine, and discover. And once you have that need met regularly through uh, marriage, uh, then you are now more interested in, okay, now I can build a life. Now I can do this thing in, in a research field. Now I can uh, create this art, create this music. And I think that is going to be one of the highlights of heaven is to be able to create, imagine, reimagine, design, um, rule and subdue creation as we were originally mandated to do in Genesis chapter 1, but to do all that without the effects of sin, shame, guilt, Jealousy, all those things that hold us back now as a culture and as a people, those things will be gone in the next age. And so you will have plenty to do and you will enjoy doing it. And you will have the fulfillment of whatever you put your hands to do. You won't have that frustration. Part of the curse given to Adam and Eve was the frustration of the creation mandate. They will now, it, when God pronounces the curse, he says, from the ground you will reap thorns and thistles and the sweat of your brow. And so work was cursed. Work was a blessing given to God before the fall, after the fall, work goes through the fall, but it becomes frustrated and slow, and uh, <clears throat> it doesn't always work out the way you want to. But in the redeemed world, I believe we'll have flourishing work to the glory of God. And I believe that Christians now in this age can have and enjoy flourishing work to the glory of God. I believe that is God's testimony of his goodness toward you. Mm. Uh, the psalmist says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I believe that that is the hope of the Christian now as a, as a preview of the age that is to come. So heaven is going to be like that. Great. I Great. hope that helps. Definitely. We got, bla you, you we got wanted, blasted with about 50 questions while you were uh, 
<laughs> while you were answering that one. Okay. Good. I love questions. I really do. This is why we're doing Ask Anything, too, because when Jesus walked the earth, m- many people don't even realize this, most of his teaching was in response to a question. People would ask a question, and then he would answer, and then he would just basically <clears throat> preach a sermon based on the question. And sometimes that's the best way to teach. It's, it's the catechistic way of teaching question and answer, uh, the Aristotelian method in um, colleges today. And so ask away. I would love to answer. Are there people that accepted Jesus as their Savior but will not make it into heaven? I know it's not about works and my sins are forgiven. However, in recent discussions, I've been hearing things like, quote-unquote, well, they think they are a Christian, but they aren't quite there. They're lukewarm. Am I good enough? Am I a lukewarm Christian? How do I know? Mm-hmm. Well, here's um, a, an important uh soteriological question about salvation is soteriological. That's a very fancy term for (laughs) preachers to sound impressive, which just means a question regarding our salvation status. Uh, So salvation is a work of God upon your life. And I think that you have to remind yourself of this regularly. You know, it's all over the book of Hebrews. I'm sorry. It's all over the book of Ephesians. Uh, You know, sometimes you just want to sit down Every once, in a while, every once in a while, Christians, and just read the first two chapters of the book of Ephesians, maybe the third chapter as well, because it's a constant reminder of the fact that you have been saved by grace through faith and not of works so that you cannot boast. There is no such thing as earning your salvation. There is no such thing as keeping your salvation. Uh, there is simply enjoying your salvation and living responsively to your salvation. However, I think that most Christians... The disservice that they do to themselves is that they they neglect their salvation, and there's plenty of warnings about that. So when we think about our salvation, we have to think of our, about our salvation as God intervened in our lives. God came and rescued us, and we responded to his rescue. The very fact that you are even considering yourself a Christian is a sign that God has, in grace, provided people to bring the message of salvation to your ears and into your life. Your response to that message is of utmost importance. You must respond to it. You must live according to it. And sometimes we neglect our salvation in that we forget what we really experienced in salvation. So you go back to first the first chapter of Ephesians. You go back to the fact that um, he predestined us to adoption. You go, you go back to the fact that he... Uh, we have, given, we have been given an inheritance. We are predestined according to his purpose. We are called according to the counsel of his will. Um, that, that these, these phrases that Paul packs into the first chapter of Ephesians are important predicates upon which you live the Christian life responsively, responsively to what God has done for you already positively. <clears throat> and so many times Christians fall into this trap of, well, I gotta find Christ, and I gotta accept Christ, and I gotta make sure Christ stays in my life. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa! Have you read what Christ said? Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I'm with you to the very end of the age. Um, that God saves, and God seals, and God preserves, and so your salvation is, is, in my opinion, you must delve ever deeper into the reality of who you are in Christ. And let that shape who you are internally so that externally the works and the fruits follow from that. And in tandem with that response, we just got another question uh, kind of broad brushed here. Is predestination real or non-biblical? Well, it's all over the Bible. It's all over Ephesians chapter 1. And predestination, you know, we we get into these... um, we get into these temporal spatial arguments about predestination. It really is a temporal spatial space-time, if you will, argument about... Uh, you know, are we predestined? Well, yes, because God knows the end from the beginning. I mean, we are uh, we are uh, saved by Christ before the foundation of the world. Paul talks about that. There are there were uh, there was there was then there is an infinite eternal um, knowledge of God that is sovereign over all the events of history, and yet the biblical narrative is proof positive that God is working through history to accomplish his ultimate purpose of saving uh, his own. Now, if this confuses you, I got great news for you, and it might not be the answer you want. It confused the Apostle Paul, yeah. because Paul the Apostle gets into this huge discussion about predestination and, and God choosing some and God choosing others and not, and not choosing others. And he goes through this big argument in Romans 9, 10, 11, and at the end of the argument, he says, you know, um, 
uh, who can really fathom the depths and the wisdom of knowledge of God? Like he gets to the point, like I, I, I don't even truly fully understand this. And that is part of being the creation and not the creator. Humans are even in their salvation and even in their theology, their theological, um, you know, postulations, they fall into the, the trap of the original temptation. You shall be like God. So it is like our job to tell God how to be or, or our, our job to say, God, why are you so unfair? You know, that is just not creationally. That is creatorly. And we are not creators. We are creations. Mm. Uh, Jeremiah says, shall the potter, uh, shall the clay say to the potter, why did you make me like this? The potter has every right to make the clay how he wants. Now, again, if that disturbs you, it's probably because inwardly you feel more entitled to be your own creator. And and by and by being that, you are just a product of the Enlightenment because the Enlightenment takes the individual and elevates it above the community. Uh, this is all in, uh, you know, human history. You can research this yourself. And you can see that this today's age where it is my, my own process of self-actualization is... Uh, I believe the epitome of the original temptation. You shall be as God. Make your own reality the way you determine. Uh, God is subject to your whims and your desires and your preferences. Uh, he doesn't know what he's doing. You know what he should be doing. And that, I, my friends, is as old as the Garden of Eden. We leave God's grace and sovereign predestined choice in his hands as his creatures. We are clay. He is potter. We are formed, he is former, and he knows the end from the beginning, and he is working all things according to the purpose of his will, Ephesians chapter 1 again. So, <laughs> great idea for a lot of Christians out there is read the first two, maybe three chapters of Ephesians and remind yourself regularly of what God did for you and what God has guaranteed in you by his grace. It <clears throat> produces a thankfulness and a responsibleness of gratitude rather than this attitude of entitlement that we see in our age and in our day today. Wow. I hope that helps. That, that was amazing. Well, well thank you yeah. so much for that. Yes. Very good uh, <laughs> summation of the fight between Calvinism and Arminianism in like three I don't minutes. like those I don't like those phrases even though because Calvinism was just proper interpretation of mm. the church fathers from the 4th century Augustine if you will and before him Ignatius and and you know, go, going all the way back to the church fathers from those who followed after the apostles, they, they read the scriptures. They knew what the scriptures taught, and so they just basically taught that. Uh, so don't take this to mean that now you don't have any responsibility. <laughs> that's that's no. the furthest thing from the truth. These people who say, well, I'm saved so I can do what I want, aren't saved. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. If you think that <clears throat> God has come to save you so that you can do what you want, you are not saved. I'm just telling you. Mm -hmm. You are saved to do what he wants. Uh, true freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. True freedom is to do is the ability to do what you ought. That's a good phrase right there. F true freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. True freedom is the ability to do what you ought because then you will flourish. Then you will prosper and you will prosper in accordance with the creator who made you to operate a certain way. And so let's, let's put it in the framework of uh, understanding what salvation is. If you get to the end of Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about this. Well, not the end, the middle of Ephesians chapter 2, where, when, when Paul talks about this. Um, let me just get there myself in my Bible here. Uh, verse 8, 9, and 10 of Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. In other words, you cannot earn even the faith to believe in God or mm. the gift of God to save you through that faith <clears throat> by his grace so that you may not boast. For we, then the very next verse, for we who have been saved by grace through faith are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you are saved by grace through faith to do what God has prepared for you to do. Live it out. That's it. Yeah. All right. Is it okay for a Christian married couple not want uh, to not want? Sorry. Is it okay for a Christian married couple to not want any children, but to still want to have sex? Well, this is a, an interesting question. Um, I would say that I don't think that you are sinning necessarily and not wanting to have children. My question back to you would be why? Uh, do you want 
basically do you want to enjoy a kind of uh, i don't know quasi hedonistic christian lifestyle where you avoid you know drinking smoking and chewing uh <laughs> you know the three big ones sex drugs and rock and roll and but you enjoy pleasures to the uttermost on this side of heaven uh and then it almost becomes a a very self-oriented version of a life that you want to create there there is there is something to be said for the catholics uh, dogma uh, against um, birth control, right here, because what we have to remind ourselves regularly of is, and I'm not, and I'm not saying that it's wrong for you to don't don't take me to say this, but let me just let me just maybe unpack a bit of a different thought about this. Uh, God has given you the ability to procreate, uh, as far as you know so far. I mean, you could try; you might be infertile. Who knows? But right. let's just assume, for the sake of argument, that you are fertile and you would be able to have children if you did procreate, and so on and so forth. That 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 process of life, that process of conception, this is a deep mystery. This is a, a work of God, and it is an act of God. And I think that when we take that act and we remove it from the divine's prerogative, um, I don't think we're living again creaturely. I think we're starting to live creatorly. Right. Uh, and that might be a hazard for you spiritually in ways that you may not yet determine or predict, but God does. So... When it comes to life and death, and I, you know, I've said this before, I'm pro-life. You know, that means that I believe abortion is murder. <clears throat> I believe that ending a life, no matter how it was conceived, as horribly as some lives are conceived, ultimately every life matters. Every conception matters. Um, there was a there was a kid in my youth group that I didn't know uh, this about him. My entire my entire ministry up in uh, the youth ministry that I was involved in up in Norwood, who was the result of a rape. Uh, this kid was one of the best kids. He was just on fire for God and, you know, I believe still serving the Lord and just a mighty man of God. I love this kid. I had no idea. When he graduated high school, his mother told me, uh, did you know that he was a child of rape? We, we adopted him. So that is, the, that is a ramification of the truth of the gospel that God brings good out of evil. Joseph to his brothers mm-hmm. at the end of Genesis chapter 50 he says, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. I don't want anyone to be raped. I don't want anyone to experience incest. <clears throat> I don't want anybody to experience those horrific things, but let's not then let's not then disbelieve God for good out of the evil. And I know that's hard to imagine. I know that's hard for some people to grapple with. But it is part of being creaturely and not creatorly, which means I am willing to allow God to do what he wants with my life, pertaining specifically, especially to life and death. Uh, this is another thing about euthanasia. Uh, should we put to death the, the infirmed? Um, and, and, and right now in Belgium, suicide rate is at an all-time high, and <clears throat> physician, uh, physician-assisted suicide is skyrocketing. Wow. And what a great question for cultures like this is what are we creating as a culture? What kind of world are we creating when we make these things happen and we start to embrace these ideas? Because I think that there is some danger to the spirit of the age that we have a hand in creating that could be detrimental for generations. And I think that's the abortion issue right now for me personally is this the abortion issue is teaching women how not to be mothers teaching men how not to be fathers. You can have sex and get away with it without any kind of responsibility. And so now our whole paradigm, our whole way of thinking around sex and dating and procreation and children is radically redefined around what makes us presently happy. I don't know if we want to really embrace a culture like that. I think that there are some immeasurable benefits to raising children for yourself. It teaches you how to be selfless. It teaches you about the father. It teaches you about sacrifice. It teaches about laying down your life and your rights and your opportunities for the sake of those who you are bringing up for the sake of human flourishing. These are realities that God has programmed into us genetically and biologically. And I think to deny them or to restrict them in extreme ways is detrimental to the spirit of the age that we are creating. So that's my answer. It's a long-winded answer. It's not a definitive yes, no. I'm sorry for that. Sometimes it's not yes, no. But I do think you have to really start asking yourself, well, why don't you want to have children? Right. And what is the spirit that you're creating within yourself? 
And, <clears throat> and if God has said, be fruitful and multiply, not just to Adam and Eve, our original ancestors, but also to another common ancestor we share, Noah and his wife, um, there, there is... There is a cause here for humans to leave that in the hands of God and do it rightly, man and woman marriage, and procreate and produce children. And I think that that produces a spirit of life rather than a culture of death. And I think that's unfortunately where Europe is getting to right now. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, the, uh, the, the country that I, we live in, America, is not very far behind, a couple decades behind, I think, if, if you ask me honestly. And I don't know, I don't know if we want to go there. I think hundreds of years from now, they'll look back on our age and they'll say, I can't believe you guys were murdering people in the womb. I can't believe you were, you know, letting doctors who were supposed to provide life and protect life actually end life. I, now, the question of how long should somebody stay on life support? Well, that's a different answer. That's a different issue there. I, sometimes that. science can actually <laughs> prolong life beyond what natural life can prolong. And I don't have good answers for that. Those are difficult situations and your doctor hopefully will provide you proper counsel with regard to extending life <clears throat> but it, it comes down to what's the motivation behind the question and i think you should do some soul searching some scriptural reading i think you should ask god what do you want from me what is your plan for us rather than we don't want to have kids because we want to just like cruise and we want to go on vacation and we never want to have responsibility that is not in my opinion the best way to make that decision Mm. So, right. not a yes or no, but go with it where the Lord leads you. Awesome. All right, so we received two questions on this next topic. I'm going to kind of combine them here. Um, why do many Christians who have no issue with drinking alcohol in moderation have an issue with other natural substances in moderation, mainly marijuana. smoking marijuana? Mm. <clears throat> and then uh, another person says, I have noticed the common theme among the youth in Christian churches, smoking marijuana. Some use it recreationally, some use it for medicinal purposes. I know this is a gray area in the Bible, but what are your views on Christian marijuana use? And Pastor Tim, uh, how do you personally feel about uh, marijuana? Okay, well, let, let's talk about, number one, alcohol. And let's just talk about alcohol from a historical perspective. You have to understand that water in the ancient world was predominantly um, uh, contaminated. Mm -hmm. We didn't have refining processes of uh, in the scientific technologies that we enjoy today so that every one of you right now can go to your faucet and drink reasonably clean, healthy water, even from the faucet. Yes, from the faucet. <laughs> uh, so, But in the ancient world, to, to not drink um, fermented uh, juice was actually a detriment to your health. So wine was almost a necessity for public health. Uh, it was safer than drinking water because you know they didn't even know in those days uh, about water um, and about the harmfulness of water and what the contaminants might be in, in water. So there's that reason historically why wine in the scriptures is absolutely permitted. Drunkenness obviously is not permitted in the scriptures. So there's that historical um, idea to acknowledge. But when it comes to substances beyond alcohol, now now let's, let's take that that framework that we just discussed historically taken into the modern world where we take alcohol now to almost an extreme in the alcoholic industry, um, you know, 90 proof uh, drinks and, and, uh, and, and liquids uh, being, what, what does that come out to? Almost half of it is pure alcohol and the refining processes and all of these things that we start to create and 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 becomes so much easier to get raging drunk with such a sh a shorter supply of of drink. Yeah. Um, these these are problematic areas. Uh, so when we get to hard liquor, <laughs> I think that you're starting to think you're getting into a different realm of controlling substances. That if you're not if you're just drinking it to get drunk again, motivation matters here. Just like the baby issue, motivation. Why are you drinking it? Uh, and then let's take that now. Let's take that question into marijuana. Why are you smoking it? Do you want your mind to go to another place? Do you need your emotions to be in an area of euphoria that you you go to because you haven't yet found the eternal joys and pleasures that you should have in God through His natural creation? So again, when it comes to marijuana, I personally don't think you should smoke marijuana. I think that the statistics and the science is out there to prove that it is detrimental to your well-being long term. 
medical marijuana another issue because that is applied in ways that alleviates pain and suffering for people and i think that we want to be in the business of alleviating some measure of physical pain and suffering now, for there, people. Is, is there also a healing element to it in terms of like That's cbd the, oil and, and the stuff that doesn't actually get you high but just helps your body yeah <clears> I, <throat> I don't know is there because I'm not sure. I'm not, I haven't. Not sure. I haven't really read up on that. Any of you marijuana experts out there? <laughs> you know, I don't know. know. But is uh, as far <laughs> as I know, the medical marijuana industry is alleviation of pain. Mm. And so you know, then we can get into well, the, the, should I not take Tylenol? Of course, <laughs> you should take Tylenol. Alleviation of pain is something that we want for people. Uh, so, but at the same time, the question of should I smoke it so that my mind goes elsewhere, so that my spirit goes elsewhere? Well, wait a second. You are mind, body, and spirit, and what you do with your mind and what you do with your spirit matters greatly to God. And so watch what substances you ingest into mm. your body that cause your body then to react in a way that could provide for you a pseudo euphoria, a, a pseudo joy where your joy should really be found in Christ and the hope of his glory. The psalmist says, in your presence is, uh, um, in your presence is everlasting joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore <clears throat> fullness of joy sorry in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore that <clears throat> christian your heart should long for the pleasures that god's presence gives and brings and when you have to go to anything for pleasure beyond god's pleasure for you i think that you open yourself up to bondage and um control from an outside external influence rather than the Holy Spirit that is in you. So, no, I don't think you should be smoking marijuana. And I don't think you should be ingesting large amounts of alcohol. Uh, it's definitely not getting drunk, but even like some hard liquor for some Christians and for me particularly. I'm not a bit, I don't think that hard liquor is something that you should be ingesting regularly as a Christian. You want to have a drink here and there, you want to have a mixed cocktail. I'm not going to say that that's sinful, but when it starts to become something that you have to have it, it's just your right and you're going to have it because it gives you a buzz or it gets to, you, you a little bit in a different mood. And let's be honest, you're never really in a mood that makes rational and good choices for yourself in those situations. <laughs> so why do it to yourself? Because this is your life that's at stake. This, And I was saying it in the second part of Hot Topics about the, yeah. the saw, like mm -hmm. your saw. It, the, your sexuality can either build your house or destroy your life. Well, the same thing with substances. And I always say this to Christians, and I don't think they're understanding it, and I don't think we get it. You only get one body. Like, this is, this is not, you don't get to change this body out someday uh, when you get older, when you get frustrated, when, 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 you, when this body starts to break down because of the things that you ingested into it earlier on in your days. So, look, do you want to live healthy? I think about it all the time. When I get to my 80s, I want to be running. I want to be, you know, rollerblading, hopefully. <laughs> you know, I love rollerblading. So I want to put things into my body that helps my body function strong for decades and I don't want to put things into my body that make that become controlling influences that are external. Rather, let the Holy Spirit control me, and and let the natural processes of health and nutrition benefit me. So, is that a definitive? Marijuana is sin, or marijuana is not sin? Is this another one of those personal convictions of the heart, similar to the last topic? Just to kind of clarify for everyone. Yeah. Well, I think that marijuana. It's hard for me to say definitively it's <clears throat> sin. Now, don't start saying I'm saying it's not sin and go smoke it. <laughs> Hear me. Because in Revelation chapter 21, it talks about the fact that men did not repent of their um, sorceries. And the word sorcery there is pharmakia, P-H-A-R-K-I-M. Like pharmaceutical? Pharmaceutical. We get the word pharmaceutical and drugs from. Drugs become... It's just, a, it's just a thin line of demarcation between helpful and alleviating pain to controlling and substance abusive. Mm. And I think that marijuana falls more readily into the controlling substance abuse category, whereas you're not using it to benefit yourself. You're using it again, once again, to take your body to a place that I don't think if you're a Christian who in, in regularly invests time in your faith and time in the kingdom of God, time in the family that God has given you, the community of faith, time in worship and in his presence, why would you want to go to something that is less than? You know what I mean? Like this is uh, the great theologian. What was his name? Um, oh, man, I forget his name. Oh, Thomas Chalmers. 
he always talked about this that the the wrestling with sin for the Christian the worst way to wrestle with sin is to stop is to say stop liking that stop liking that shame on you for liking that's that's a fruitless way to fight sin the better way to fight sin is to to uh, generate a greater affection for that which is perfect and who in, and what is perfect God God mm-hmm. is perfect so he talks about the expulse is the, the book is or the or the the topic that he talks about is the expulsive power of a more beneficial affection i think that's what it is or better better affection which means aim at loving god and you won't have to search for all of these lesser loves to do for you what god alone can do for you because what those things promise you can only give you a forgive the language a bastardized form of pleasure and enjoyment that God can fully provide for you. Mm. So I say, Christian, rather than ask yourself, and this is a great, I used to do this with you all the time, rather than ask yourself, well, what can I go and do to be as far away from God as possible and still be a Christian? Why not rather say, what can I rather do to get close to God, to develop my life with God, to enjoy his presence and his fullness? Because I to believe that he is good is to believe that he is the ultimate good for me. And so I should want to rather walk in the direction of nearness to God rather than in the direction of let me see how far I can go away from God and still be okay to get to heaven. Mm-hmm. I mean, if that's your mindset and mantra, then there's something <coughs> in you that you might have to do some exploring. There's some there's some motivations and some spiritual issues there that you might need to explore. Do you really, like think about this, if marijuana or whatever substance you really want to ingest if that is not in heaven, can you can you go there and still enjoy it? Can you look forward to it? Because if you can't, you've got a controlling influence in your life, and your love is not for God. It is for other things, and that's where I think repentance and prayer and time with his word and with his people really come into play because that's how you develop the affection mm. for, the, for the greater things, the better things, God. Yeah. All right. Uh, we got another question here. Have you considered adding a service during the week for people who cannot attend during the weekend besides First Wednesday and small know. groups? I work every weekend and have children that I desperately need in church. I feel so lost myself since we haven't been able to attend service since last year. And uh, from Facebook, we've realized that uh, this particular woman uh, has a two-year-old and a nine-year-old. Okay. Uh Could you do something for me in the comments in Facebook? Let us know when. <laughs> <laughs> when you would like that service to occur. Because I have thought about it. Mm. I thought about doing a Thursday night service and actually eliminating the Saturday night service and having Thursday night and then Sunday services. Uh, but, you know, those are thoughts I'm always having. Uh, predominantly still in our context of America, the weekend is still the weekend for many people. So mm. th- there are very few and far between jobs that require you to work throughout the entire weekend. So let us know in the comments below, and I'd love to hear from you. When would you suggest us have a service? Because it's always we're always changing, and that's the one thing that will never change is that we will constantly change yeah. um, to accommodate the presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the wonderful freedom that the Christian faith allows us. We don't have to necessarily have church on Sunday. You know, if, if it becomes illegal to have church on Sunday in this country, well, we'll move the service. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, if it becomes illegal to have a church gathering in this country Sunday, well, then we'll just gather in homes. We'll do what they're doing in China in the underground church right now. Yeah. The movement of Jesus is unstoppable because we will find a way to have church, and and we don't need to have buildings, and we don't need to have tax exemptions, and we don't need to have <laughs> structures, denominations, and anything. Like that. What we need is the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit uh, elders and teachers of the Word of God. Mm. And uh, actually, somebody just asked, have you guys ever thought about starting a Bible study night? I think this would be uh, very interesting for many people, and then new people would greatly benefit from it. Well, that's what this that's is. That's what this is. Yeah, <laughs> this was and this is a Bible study, and we're still, uh, we are going to be reimagining the podcast during the month of August. So we're taking a month break there, a month and a half break or so, and we're coming back with a new studio. Ooh. And we're coming over with a new format and a new way in which we're doing it. And I'm very excited about this podcast, listeners, uh, that one of the things we're going to do is a regular segment of Ask Anything. Yeah. So in the I've, I've actually loved this during the Hot Topic series. The, the number is there in the um, bulletin on Sunday or Saturday when you come to church to ask a question based on the topic that we discuss on the weekend. 
that's going to become a permanent part of our weekend experience. So whatever I'm preaching on, if as I preach, you say, man, I'd really like some more clarification about that, or I have a question, you mentioned this, and I was really thinking about that, and I had to So you text us those questions to the number, and every podcast on Wednesday now, we're going to take, you know, two or three questions. It's not going to be the whole conversation, yeah. but it, we would like to make it a segment of the podcast going forward, because I think, again, many of Jesus' best lessons were taught in the responsive, to the responsive questions. Amen. And let us know what you guys think, too. Um, yeah, we're always looking for feedback. We want to make it better. Next question here. What does the Bible say about suicide? Can a Christian who commits suicide go to heaven? Well, I, I'm going to tell you that, that there is no definitive text that says if you commit suicide, you go to hell. I was raised to believe that. Yeah, me too. Um, and, <laughs> you know, after <laughs> reading the Bible hun- literally hundreds of times, I haven't found the text that supports that. Now, don't go commit suicide. <laughs> it is murder. Uh, it is sin, uh, and it is it is detrimental to not just yourself. It is detrimental to those you leave behind. Mm. Suicide really is uh, a very selfish act. It is a it is a terribly selfish act, uh, and so it's an ironic thing that people who are depressed commit suicide because uh, that's that betrays a larger issue underlying your betray your your depression. That many times people are depressed. And really what they are is very self-oriented. They're so consumed by self, they turn in on themselves. And I got to tell you, if I turn in on myself and never do something like this, helping people, never preach the gospel, never love my family, never experience the joys of community community and relationships, I would also get very depressed and I would long for the end of my life. Because in here, like, like, like Paul the Apostle says, I know that in me there dwells no good thing. The only good thing in me is Christ. So if I focus on what's up in here, I'm going to get depressed. And eventually it will consume me and I will, you know, be driven to that, that idea of ending it all. So this, the issue of suicide is, an, I believe, an issue of complete self-absorption. And I know people who are struggling with it might say, that's offensive to me. But before you get offended, just consider this. Consider that. By committing suicide, all those you love, all those that care about you, who are out there, will be enormously hurt by your final act. Is that not selfish? Is that not the epitome of self-absorption? To say to the entire world of your entire community, forget you people, move on without me. That's, that's selfish. And, and I think that is... There's an underlying issue of depression that leads to it because you are not in community. You are not living beyond yourself. This is why Christ says, deny yourself. If you want life, lose it for my sake and you will find it. You know, the greatest among you must be servant of all. These are not, these are not Christian um, uh, what, what is, sentimentalities. These are not hallmarkisms of Christianity. No, Jesus is giving us the secret to a life well-lived, the true life, a life that lives outside of itself, a life that lives not for my own enjoyment and pleasures, but for the good and benefit of others around me. And I do that not because it helps me feel better about myself. I do that because I have received the ultimate good in Christ Jesus who died and gave his life for me. So now I can live outside of myself freely, um, and not selfishly, you know, even, even selfless acts can be done in a self-centered way. Like a lot of people, this is Americanism. This is American do goodism 101 here. A lot of people do selfless acts because they say, well, it makes me feel so good. Well, if you're doing it just so that it makes you feel so good, aren't you just doing it for yourself? Like, think about that really. So learn to deep, deep dive into the gospel, deep dive into what God has done for you so that you receive it. And it's living in you. And you now know that your eternal salvation is settled and sealed in heaven forever. And now you can live outside of yourself for the sake of others. And you will feel better about yourself. But it's not for the sake of feeling better about yourself. It is living with the power of God working in you and through you to benefit the lives of others. And you will find meaning, purpose, hope, joy, community, significance as the gospel not just comes to you but goes through you. That's great. Um, 
Okay. Uh, why? Uh, to my knowledge, we don't know anything about Jesus's teenage years. Did he struggle with the same temptations and thoughts that I do as a teenager? It seems impossible that he would never have sinned even once, considering I sin constantly, sometimes without even thinking about it. Yeah. Okay. Great question. Um, be careful to equate your struggle, the way you struggle, to the way Christ struggled. Um, he was. 100% God, 100% man. He was a one man, two natures. The, the Council of Chalcedon settled this forever because the scriptures make it clear. So remember that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of a, a virgin. So he was man, 100% man, 100% God. Now, that calls us into mystery. That calls us into mystery. And let us not avoid mystery as Christians because a faith that brings you to a place of definition about everything is not actually a faith that's just <laughs> observation right christianity is a very mysterious religion we believe in one god in three persons and there is n really no way to unpack that properly okay so anyway let's get back to it, it, it the trinity itself draws us into mystery not um not definitive answers or or, or quantifiable comparisons such as the egg like the yolk and the white and the shell. I mean, this is not a quantifiable comparison to the God of the universe. <laughs> right? So let's get back to your question. Mm. No, Jesus did not sin. The, the scriptures are clear. Jesus did not sin. He, and yes, he was tempted in every way as we are. Now, was he tempted with pornography like we are today? No, because he didn't have the internet and he didn't have 24-hour sex on every advertisement available to you like we do today. Uh, did he struggle with gambling like people struggle to today? I don't think so. So the, the, <clears throat> the method of temptation was there, was different, but the reality of temptation was there. So the inward temptation, such right. as lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. Those are the three, by the way. Those are the three um, uh, categories of temptation listed not just in the garden with the original temptation when Eve sees the fruit, but it's also uh, it, those three categories are enumerated in 1 John chapter 2. Uh, everything in the world, he says, uh, 1 John 2, 15 and 16, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, that means that there are things in my body I want to bring into my body, and I want to. It's a lust. It becomes this thirst. It becomes this <clears throat> desire, and I feed it, and it becomes greater and stronger. That's lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes. That would be thing, looking at things, envy, uh, desire, um, you know, um, sexual desire, uh, financial desire, inordinate desires of the eyes. I see. I want. I go. I grasp. And then the pride of life. Once I get these things, I start to look at them as um, life. Uh, life, uh, um, what, what's the word that I'm looking for? These are things that bring value to my life. And, and the only way that I'll ever have a valuable life is if I have a six-figure salary and a Rolls-Royce in the driveway and a five-bedroom, uh, five three-bathroom, uh, three-car gar three garage house mm -hmm. somewhere. So these lusts of the flesh and the pride of life, now I'm, now I'm significant because I have. Those are the three categories that Jesus was tempted with in every way. He is, and then if you go to the original temptations, remember when Ma Matthew talks about this in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is drawn to the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted of the devil. And all three temptations speak to those three categories, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. Um, turn the bread into the stones. Um, uh, uh, oh, bow down and worship me. I'll give you the kingdoms of this world and throw yourself down from the temple and, and, and prove to yourself, prove to me that you're the Son of God. The three temptations, the categories are there. So in the Garden of Eden, in Matthew chapter 4, and in 1 John chapter 2, those enumerated categories are there. He was tempted just like you are, but not in the very same methods that you are. But he was without sin. Now, what is the hope of the Christian that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet was without sin? Here's the hope of the Christian. Now we have an advocate with the Father who knows what it was, knows what it's like to be human. And because he can associate with us in our weaknesses, he can properly intervene uh, on our behalf and intercede to the Father on our behalf. He can pray as he is right now, interceding for us at the right hand side of God the Father with the proper prayers for you. 
So young teenager, I know that like never before, there are temptations coming at you every which way. And you have a device in your pocket probably right now that you could pull out and you could uh, unfurl uh, an innumerable number of temptations such as no generation before you has ever experienced. Mm. But I'm telling you right now that you have a savior in heaven who is more powerful than all those temptations and your hope and trust in him is your hope for victory over those temptations. Uh, there is no other mediator mm. in any other religious um, system that promises and can do for you what Christ Jesus, the God-man, can do for you. So put your hope in that. All right. Uh, keeping on with these theological Bible questions. These are interesting. How did the entire human race come from Adam and Eve and their two sons? Where did Adam and Eve's sons' wives come from? And if Cain married his sister then uh, wouldn't he be sinning by committing incest and wouldn't that produce genetically defective children? That's a great question. So here's the answer. Uh, no, it wouldn't have produced genetically deficient children because Adam and Eve were created perfectly. Uh, Cain most likely did marry his sister or you know, procreate with his sister, um, so on and so forth. Was there marriage the, at that point? There was probably, yeah. I mean, there's no, and, and, and there was no law at that point. Remember, and Paul unpacks this too in Romans, that these people sinned outside of the law, uh, and God overlooked these sins. Now, judicially, he will not overlook them because in the end of days, he will judge every man's work according to his perfect righteousness. But in the historical narrative of salvation, he did overlook those sins, and he overlooked things that were not proper for humans later in generational life. Now, Biologically speaking, Adam and Eve were perfectly created. They had, what I'm talking about here is unaffected through biological transmission DNA with the detriments and the deformities and the genetic mutations that occur over time in every uh, line of the human race. And so they had perfected bodies. So their bodies, and this is again, this is I'm, I'm thinking about this uh, hypothetically, and and uh, or no, this is a hypothesis, a theological hypothesis of how this happened, that because they had more perfect DNA and more perfect genetics, being from the Garden of Eden, they perfected reality, uh, that the intermarriage between sister and brother in that moment, or the inter sexual expression between sister and brother in that moment, was not as effective as as affected problematically as it would be today. So Cain could See, have sex with his sister and not create any kind of genetic yes. issues because yes. they were so clean and pure. Yes, and, and and please don't think, now that gives us license <laughs> for incest. No, it's not, <clears throat> does not give us license for incest. Uh, incest is definitely uh, out of bounds according to the scriptures, although I will say that there is no New Testament text about it, but there is plenty of Old Testament text. I don't think it. anybody uh, texts nobody, a question about if Nobody wants to good. do it. I'm sure, I'm sure nobody <laughs> wants to do this, but I'm just trying to tell you that... <laughs> There were allowances in God throughout the narrative of human history to accomplish things that, that he wanted to accomplish, such as the procreation of the human race, um, that when you get to the law and you get to Leviticus specifically, now God takes, and here's what happens in Leviticus, so let we, let's, get this, let's get our heads wrapped around this contextually with the redemptive narrative of the Bible, which is that Leviticus is the code of ethics for God's redeemed people, that if they live according to these laws, because he is their Lord, and because the nations around them will see them prosper and flourish and be healthy, that their testimony of the healthiness of their lives will be a testament to the nations that their God is the God, right? No. So that's when God starts to come around and say in, in Leviticus, don't have sex with this person, don't have sex with that person, don't do this with your body, don't do that with your body, ceremonial washings and all the kinds of things. And all these kinds of um, hygienic laws come into place and, and we, we really like overlook them and some people read right past them, but they are actually hygiene laws that were given to the people of Israel centuries, if not millennia before we understood things like bacteria and germs. This is really phenomenal when you think yeah. about it. This speaks to the dietary laws in Leviticus 15. How do we not know that the ecology of the age in that particular quadrant of the, uh, the, the earth did not have those unclean animals be unhealthy to the human I, I never experience. thought about it like that. That's so, crazy. And, and this is a verifiable scientific fact that there are sometimes we have things like mad cow disease, yeah. but it doesn't last. And then we had things like um, the pigs were unhealthy at one point, I think in England, if I remember correctly, I was split, slipping, slipping my mind now. But so there are times when we should avoid certain animals for our own protection. And how do we not know that for that particular point in human history that those dietary laws were for the flourishing 
of Israel's health as a testimony to the other nations who worshiped other idols that their God was the God. And so come and worship him. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and what and, was the original question to that? I don't even know. I got <laughs> such a tangent. It was, uh, it was pretty much out of the human race come from Adam and Eve, but how uh, did so, I get the dietary laws on that? That's interesting. <laughs> okay. So anyway, you can eat pig now. Thanks to Jesus. Okay. So <laughs> go have some bacon. Poor chaps. Somebody asked, uh, where did all the different races come from? Well, there is no races. There's one race. It's the human race. And let's, let's get away from that because mm-hmm. I think that we do ourselves a disservice. I think race is a product of evolutionary biology. It's very easy to come up with races if you can say, well, we genetically mutated from apes and monkeys and this kind of animal and that kind of animal. And then we can produce a superhuman race, can we not? This is, what, this is how you get Hitler. This is how you go from Darwin to Hitler. Okay, This is how you get there. Okay, now I'm not saying that everybody who believes in evolution is is a Nazi. Please don't. <laughs> we For throw, all you Facebook yeah, trolls, we take throw, it easy. We throw Hitler around way too much in, the, in our modern context, especially in the political realm. But what I am saying, though, is you have to understand that in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, Paul says clearly, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that from one man he made every nation of men and determined the times and places where they should live. Acts chapter 17, I think 25 and 26. It is supported in the New Testament. It is supported in the Old Testament narrative. It is supported throughout the Holy Scriptures that we all come from a common ancestor, Adam and Eve. Now, how do we have different colors, different shape of eyes, different shape of, uh, I don't know what else, noses, noses, um, you know, other heads? Well, (laughs) this is verifiable scientifically that, that over time, uh, living in certain parts of the world, um, the the uh, skin cells change over time. The uh, noses develop a certain ways, and and we see it through even three generations. You look at your grandfather, you look at your children. You, you know you can see the the, sh- the the slight harmonies and the slight shiftings. And so over the course of human history, four, five thousand, six thousand years, I mean there are an, an untold innumerable mutations of the hu- one human race that that for lack of a better word, evolve, okay? But we are all from one man. And so that's why uh, racism is about as stupid as you can get. You are hating your brother. You are hating your sister. Stop it. Mm. Uh, somebody asks, I believe that God created everything around us from the earth to humans, but according to scripture, a lot of scientific findings would uh, be historically incorrect if we only went by what the Bible says. How can we explain dinosaurs, ancient animal species, evolution, etc.? Is it possible to believe in both? The way I see it, science is just a way of humans trying to explain God's creation and the process of it. Am I wrong for thinking it? And how can I change my way of thinking if it is wrong? Well, no, you're not wrong in that science is uh, man's best attempt at trying to understand what God already did. If you look at the definition of the Big Bang Theory, it says that, that light particles scattered from a central source into the world and started to create and started to form and all this stuff, photons. Well, the word photon is the Greek word for light. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the very first, the very, uh, the, the third verse of the Greek translation of the Old Testament is let there be photons, not let there be, but the Greek words and photons being light. So the Big Bang Theory, believe it or not, supports uh, Genesis chapter one. Um, then you have um, uh, reputable scientists to this day who have documented and written about the fact that after all of their scientific hypotheses and study and research, they believe fully that the earth and the universe came about the way that Genesis chapter one, the first five books of Moses discuss the universe coming about. Mm. Um, Understand that human beings um, will taint everything. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Even our scientific discovery is tainted by our own humanity, that sin nature. So yeah. if a man will not believe in God, I'm telling you that that man will have a propensity to find the evidence in such a way to support his disbelief in God. Yeah. If a man will believe in God, he will look at the evidence and see that it is clearly evidence for the belief in the creation as as it, as it is depicted in Genesis chapter 1. So, all that to say this. Uh, God 
created the world. Genesis chapter one is trying to tell you. He created the world and all that you know and all that you see. And this was written to an ancient people in in Egypt who were under the auspices of slavery to a very um, polytheistic culture called the Egyptians, okay? And so what God was trying to tell them through Genesis chapter one, two is, I, your God, am the God of all the things that they worship as God. I am the creator of the sun, which they worship as God. I am the creator of Pharaoh, which they worship as God. I am the creator of the sand and the land and the cows and the beasts and the fields and all this. I I made it all. So trust me. And I think that we have to look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in those terms rather than in God is writing a um, scientific document for first-year college students. <laughs> okay, he's not. This book has existed long before college ever was thought of. So you got to think about it in, those, in that frame of mind. Um, and there is plenty of scientific discovery that supports the, the, uh, the scriptures. Yeah, just to put a quick plug in, too, uh, first of all, um, somebody on Facebook, don't feel bad about asking any kind of questions. You Never. Know? That's a great question. I thank a, God for that question. All the questions are great, and we love being able to, to converse and talk about these things. Secondly, uh, the plug, starting point covers a lot of the stuff. Oh yeah, that's right. I had the pleasure of, uh, of working through that yeah. class and editing uh, so those videos and I tell you, I learned so much just doing that and a lot of this stuff, like um, the uh, the photon concept, the Big Bang. Oh thing, yeah, that's right. That's in that, that class. That's in that class. So check it out. Sign up for that. You can you can do that. I'm not exactly sure when the next one is, but you can come by yeah. Info Central. And let something. me just say something too. I was reading actually today about common ancestry. There is common ancestry amongst humans. Scientists have to actually agree with this. We all share one common ancestor. But there's also scientific evidence that goes further back says that all created things share one common ancestor. And that is not that does not disprove the Bible. Mm. It actually proves the Bible because it says that God made man from the dust of the earth. And what separated man from the rest of creation was the spirit of God that came in, the breath of life that came in, and man became a living being. That means he became an internal being, an external soul. And so that is what separates us from the apes and the monkeys, not necessarily our DNA structure. So you'll go to first-year science or biology in college, and they'll say, well, look at all. The fact is, is that monkeys share 99% of our DNA or whatever that, that hypothesis is. And we as Christians can say, of course they did, because they came from the dust too. Yeah. <laughs> the, and we came from the dust. And the same artist, it's like, it's like Michelangelo. If you look at a painting of Michelangelo from his early years, and you look at a painting of Michelangelo from his later years, you can say, I can see the brush strokes are similar. I can see the paint strokes are similar. I can see the, the, the same designer, different things. Same materials, different things. Same thing with us. Yes, we are very much like the created order, but the difference is we have an eternal soul and, a, mm. and the spirit of God within us. And if you are not a Christian, you have that common grace of God in you. That Not in you, but... You have that um, that suppressed knowledge of God in you, as Romans chapter one talks about. So, <clears throat> science and faith, friends, you got to make sure that you understand this. Scientific theory, scientific discovery, came out of was a birth child of the Reformation. The Reformation was the call for the church to get back to the authority of Scripture and uh, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, and not through ordinances and church practices. These things are not incompatible. The people who tell you they are incompatible are lying to you. And you need to trust that <laughs> you need to look at your history and you need to find out where it comes from because it will be a very much more informed Christian. Okay, so why are some of the same stories present in most older cultures than Christianity? I'm assuming stories that this person yeah, is the, to Yeah, uh, like flood. the Epic of Gilgamesh. Yeah. Uh, and um, the, the Nag Harabi of the uh, Egyptians, or, or I forget where that comes from. But anyway... Like these things are a, um, these things are a touch of truth, but the scriptures are truth, and so um, what you have in the scriptures is the Holy Spirit inspiring Moses. Let's talk about the first five books. Moses to interpret the data of creation properly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and and so outside of that you have these, um, what I would call tainted half-truth versions of the same story. Right. And, and even, you know, uh, anthropologists will tell us this, that there are origin stories in places like um, the Mayan culture and uh, even the Native American culture of our this country's history that testify to 
somewhat similar stories that we find in the first five books I remember of the Bible. years ago that movie Zeitgeist was like a big thing. I don't know if you ever watched that. And no. It, and it went through all of that, you know, trying to pretty much disprove yeah. exactly what you're saying. Yeah. So the thing is, is that origin stories are very similar. They are because we all come from the same origin and they were passed down through oral transmission. The difference between the Bible and those transmitted stories are the Bible is inspired by the creator himself. Moses wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We take that by faith. We take that from the scripture itself, that the scripture itself bears witness to its uh, divine inspiration. All, God, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, correcting, training, and rebuking righteousness. So the scriptures are the proper interpretation of all the origins and all the stories, and all the other stories are d distortions of the truth, which is the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And I think that you have to remember that the, the Bible has been around a long, long time. I was in Israel. Let me close with this because we got to close. But I was in Israel, and in Israel they have a uh, shrine. It's called the Shrine of the Book, and it is a fantastic. It is a fascinating museum. The Jewish people, I can tell you this as a fact, they take the transmission of the scriptures, and they have historically taken the transmission of the scriptures extraordinarily serious, extraordinarily serious. They were deliberate in proper transmission, and by that I mean copying and preserving the scriptures for millennia, okay? They have a whole museum dedicated to the fact that this book is their book and the, the means by which they exist today. Okay, what I'm trying to tell you is <laughs> there's a lot of historical scientific proof of the reliability of the scriptures themselves. Historical scientific proof. Uh, these, these, these books were not written by men in their closets trying to come up with a way to explain things. Okay, it never would have passed the, the, the litmus test of... of, of of a proper dissemination of information according to the guidelines of, of historical preservation of these documents, okay? So I'm just trying to tell you that as much as we take the Bible as a spiritual book, it is also a historical book, and it has also been preserved through dedicated people who have believed for millennia. This is the inspired words of God. Take them seriously, preserve them accurately, transmit them regularly, because hope lies within them. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us. I have enjoyed this. I love questions. We will be back next Wednesday for questions based on our topic this weekend, but not just based on this topic next weekend. So come this weekend, text your questions from the weekend right through the Facebook Live moment on Wednesday, next Wednesday at noon. I look forward to answering them. We will have a special guest with me, maybe two. Looking forward to that. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Hot Topics, The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's Deep End Podcast. We pray that you continue to grow in your faith and that you would serve and support your local church. If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us this weekend at Waters Church. We are located at 57 John Deach Square in North Attleboro, Massachusetts. And you can join us every Saturday at 4 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.30 and 11.30 a.m. Make sure to stay tuned in for next week's episode of The Deep End Podcast.